All right, I'll try not to catch on fire up here. Uh, <laughs> you had to move this a lot closer because of the kids over there. So, hello. All right. <laughs> How many of you here know the names of your great-grandparents? How about your great-great-grandparents? That's pretty good. You guys excel. Uh, I think most Americans, most living in modern America... Um, know little today of their ancestors. They, they can rattle off the names of the family trees, but just maybe for a couple of branches. Um, people are far more concerned with who they are now. <laughs> they live in the moment. Uh, they might be a little concerned with the family tree, but mostly with regards to where the branches may start growing out from them. But that's not always the case. In the past, um, um, especially here as we see in our passage, um, where one came from, the family tree is of great significance and importance. You know, it might seem a little bit odd for us this morning. As we open up our Bibles, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 1. It's printed in your bulletin. But Matthew chose to begin the first 17 verses of his gospel um, going through the family tree of Jesus. It's extremely important, though, for a Jewish person in Matthew's day And through understanding what's going on, it'll help us as well. Here's what Bishop N.T. Wright had to say about this. He said, this genealogy was the equivalent of drum rolls, a fanfare of trumpets, and a town crier calling for attention. Any first century Jew would find this family tree both impressive and compelling. Like a great procession coming down a city street, we watch the figures at the front and the ones in the middle. But all eyes are waiting for the one who comes in the position of the greatest honor right at the end. So when I read this passage, I want you to contemplate um, who does Matthew say this baby born unto Mary is and and from whom has he descended and, and what could it all mean? Not just for the people back then, but for you here today. Matthew chapter one, verses one through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Ruth. By, excuse me, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Have I lost any of you yet? Okay. (laughs) And after the deportation to Babylon, 
Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuid, and Abuid the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mahan, Mahan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Christ, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of God, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word to us. It seems a little confusing to our ears. We know it's in Scripture for some great reason. Help us to see that. Help me to preach it well. Um, Be with us by your Spirit to cause us to see how good you are to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I think most of us here know what resumes are, but for the younger ones here, get excited. There's a day coming when you're going to summarize all of who you are on one sheet. Yes, one sheet. And you're going to highlight all of your strengths and weaknesses and the things that you've done. And you're going to turn this in uh, to some company or organization. And they're going to put it in a pile of a whole bunch of other resumes. And your hope is that someone will look at that, at that organization, and say, I need you. And so they're going to hire you. So that's what's coming. Get excited. Those of us who've gone through that process... You know, uh, we have to dust off the old resume is what we always say, right? Now, you would think with something as so critically important as to getting and landing that next great job, that people would be prudent with what they and careful with what they put on their resumes. But that's not always the case. I, I found this website that lists uh, people are able to put in the craziest things they've seen on resumes or applications. So I thought I'd share a few with you. Feel free to laugh. All right. Uh, one person put down... Bachelorette degree in computers. <laughs> Another put, excellent typist, great speed and accuracy, 756 words per minute. <laughs> I like this one. Married, eight children, prefer frequent travel. <laughs> Other person put down, it's best for employers that I not work with people. Hmm. Someone else wrote, I'm very detailed oriented. <laughs> I think that went through. All right. Uh, one guy actually wanted to try to appear trustworthy. So under the skills section, he put an expert at not stealing. And then a, <laughs> one of those smiley faces, you know. And then uh, this was from an actual application. It looked like obviously like mom helped the kid work on it. Uh, why do you want to work here? Uh, my mom says I need a job. And then below it says, do you have your own transportation? And then in different handwriting it says, I will drive him. (laughs) All right, so we laugh at these crazy resume examples, and we're all kind of thankful maybe that we haven't done anything like that. Some of you are probably going to go home and check your resume for typos or what have you. But resumes play an important part in our society. All throughout the world, all over, there's literally millions of resumes landing on human resources directors' tables and desks, and they're scouring them through uh, in an attempt to do what? Resumes have a special ability to match a need with a person. 
They match a need with a person. In our passage today, it kind of reads a lot like a resume. For it matches one person with a need. The need is this. The world is not as it should be. And we aren't as we should be. We have a great need. We are in need of God to come and do something within his creation and for people made in his image. That's our need. Now for the person. Matthew tells us that unto Mary a child is born, and this is Jesus, the Savior of the world. His resume and his resume alone is the one that is necessary for the need that the world has and for the need that you have. The entire Gospel of Matthew presents this reality of who Christ is and how he's fulfilled all God's plans and purposes um, for this world. Um, Today, though, we're just going to look at one aspect of that. We're going to focus on one thing, and that is this. Jesus was born to save. It's, It's actually in his DNA. We're going to look at who he is, who he came from, and who he came for. First, who he is. You know, Matthew wastes no time getting us up to speed. In one sentence, the very first sentence, Matthew tells his readers all they need to know. And if you were a first century Jewish person, that would be sufficient. You would have all you need to know, but we're not first century Jewish people. We need a little bit of help. There's three things that he says about Jesus. First, that Jesus is the Messiah who saves. We see this where? The the phrase, Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of modern people today, we we think Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name, kind of like John Smith. But that's not the case. Christ is not a name, it's a title. Uh, Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which is a a translation of the Hebrew Messiah. Uh, Christ signifies anointing. It means one has been set apart by God for a special task. Now, in Jesus' days, people were waiting for the Christ, for the Messiah. And they were hoping, though, that, that, that this Messiah would come and do what? Rescue them from their problem. A big problem, but a problem only for their time to be rescued from the Roman uh, conquerors and be delivered from them. But what we see here in this passage is that that Jesus was um, born to be the Christ for all people, in all places, in all times, in all nations. We see that in the name Jesus. Jesus isn't just any old name. Now, Jesus is the Greek uh, word for the Hebrew word, Joshua. How did, how did he get this name, Jesus or Joshua? Well, in the very next passage, Matthew, in Matthew, um, God speaks to a very nervous Joseph. And, and God says to Joseph, Joseph, he says, you know, this woman uh, that you're betrothed to, Mary, she's pregnant. Yes, okay, she's going to be pregnant. But guess what? It's going to be work of my Holy Spirit. Don't freak out, all right? And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. My friends, the name Joshua, the name Jesus, literally means the Lord saves. God spoke to Joseph. He wanted to make sure that when he, he sent Jesus to earth, that he was born, that he had the right name. That as he's anointed as Christ for a particular task, and his name tells us what that is, the Lord saves. So, 
He also tells us here in the first verse that Jesus is the son of David. Now, yes, Jesus is a descendant, a direct descendant of David. Yeah, that little shepherd boy who who became the great conquering king, that one. Jesus has royal blood. This might not be important to us, but it was important to Matthew's readers. Now, the word son of David, though, means more than that he was just born in the right family line. It really is a title, the son of David. David. It comes with great meaning. It means at least two things. It means first that there's a special promise concerning this son of David. You can read it in in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promises that there's a king to come who's going to sit on an eternal throne. And this kingdom will be established forever. Matthew wants his readers to know that this Jesus is that son of David. Another thing that we pick up is that that there's also a ministry expectation with this title, the son of David. People in Jesus's day were expecting a king to come and to liberate and to to heal the land. They were also expecting the people of the land to be healed and treated well and and restored by this this son of David to come. As J.R.R. Tolkien writes in the, The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, we read, The hands of the king are hands of a healer. As we know in the gospel accounts, Jesus was often approached by people crying out for mercy and for healing. Early in his ministry in Galilee, two blind men followed Jesus and they called out to him saying, have mercy on us, son of David. And then there was a Canaanite woman approached him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus Christ, as the son of David, offers his strength to the weak and the wounded. It should be no surprise to us that a little bit later in Matthew, he cries out saying, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of David. But his resume doesn't end there. He's also the son of Abraham. Who is Abraham? Well, Matthew's genealogy starts with him. Most Jewish readers would have known that Abraham was a pagan who lived in foreign lands until God called him to be in a special relationship with him. God chose Abraham out of all the people on earth to in him to start a family that would grow into a nation. Right. Why would he do this? Well, God told Abraham, you can read it in Genesis 12. uh, I'm going to bless you so that all of the peoples, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. How does the Gospel of Matthew end? Jesus commanding his followers to go into all the families of the world, go to all the nations uh, and, and, and share this Gospel good news and make disciples. Through this Son of Jesus, the true, the Son Jesus, the true Son of Abraham, uh, God's promise to bless the world is being fulfilled. That's who he is. Now, who did he come from? We see two things uh, about Jesus. Jesus came from all the right people, and he came from all the wrong people. How can that be true at the same time? Well, just give me a moment. All right. Jesus came from all the right people. 
Jesus is, uh, excuse me, Matthew's Jewish readers would have demanded that Jesus would come from all the right people. So you could claim to be king of the Jews, you could claim to be the Messiah, the Christ, but unless you really truly have king's blood flowing through your veins, you don't make the mark. You don't get hired, so to speak. Your resume, um, Jesus' resume must show that he goes all the way back to King David and back to Abraham. So Matthew tells us that Jesus has royal blood coursing through his veins. This meant everything to Matthew's readers, and it should mean everything to us. Though born in obscurity, though he would later be rejected by his own people that he came to save, though he would later be sentenced to death, though later Roman guards would mock Jesus by putting royal garb on him and by pressing a crown of thorns into his head, though they would hang a sign over his body on the cross, which reads, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Though they rejected Christ, the fact was and is, he was the one they desperately needed. And it's a great irony, right? The sign, the sign reads, this is Jesus. What does Jesus mean? The Lord saves. This is the Lord saving you. That's royal blood dripping down the cross. Oh, that they would have understood. Oh, that we would understand. Jesus came from all the right people. He's the rightful heir to the throne. He's the one whose resume fulfills what we need. He comes from all the right people, but he also comes from all the wrong people, too. It's important for us to see that Jesus had skeletons in his closet, so to speak. Now, you and I, uh, when we're working on our resumes, we, we tend to do what with our skeletons? We tend not to mention them. We tend not to put them down on our resumes. You don't purposely mention things on your resume, like how you mistakenly shipped 100,000 units to the wrong customer. (laughs) Or how you single-handedly shut down the entire computer network because you clicked on a link that ended up being a computer virus. You don't write on your resume how you really typically show up habitually 10 minutes late to work every day. (laughs) By the way, you can expect that out of me, right? You don't write that, you don't write on your resume really how you tend to blame shift or take credit where credit isn't due or brown nose, complain about your boss behind his or her back. You don't put that down, do you? No. We tend to leave our failures off our resume, but Jesus' genealogy is full of failures. Yes, it has excellent names. It's got like King David and Josiah and Hezekiah. But, but even David committed a great sin by falling into adultery with Bathsheba and then killing her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And Hezekiah, he, he was a great king, but then at one point he became filled with foolish pride. He showed the treasures of all of Israel to their enemies who later plundered them. And when you look at this, this list of kings, half of them are truly wicked. Consider Ahaz. He worshipped the, the god of Assyria. He, he entered into human sacrifice. He even offered up his own son and had him killed as a sacrificial offering. Now, in addition to these failed kings and wicked kings, 
Matthew includes four women with questionable paths. Now, in the ancient genealogies, women would not most likely not be included in one's genealogy, but Matthew includes them. Who are they and why are they included? First, there's Tamar. Do you know the story of Tamar? You can read it in Genesis chapter 38. In our passage in verse 3, read, And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Okay, so Judah was a son of Jacob. And, and Judah had some, some boys. His eldest son was named Ur. Yeah, E-R. I don't know. Go get it. Uh, figure that one out. All right. Ur was married to Tamar. But before Tamar could bear a son, Ur died. And so the tradition back then was the next son in that family would bear a child for, um, for, for, for Tamar so that the family name would not be cut off for all eternity. Uh, and so Ur's brother's name is Onan. Uh, but Onan knew that if he slept with her and she had a child, that, well, he wouldn't get the inheritance. So he, he laid with her, but then he spilled, it, spilled his semen on, on the ground and she didn't become pregnant. And Onan ended up dying. And so Judah sees two of his sons die, and so he won't give her another one. There's another son named Shelah, who he says is too young, uh, and, and, but he never fo- Judah never fulfilled his obligation or his promise. What did Tamar do? She dressed up like a prostitute. She slept with Judah, and she became pregnant. And she bore Judah two sons, one for each of the sons that was taken away from Judah, and their names are Perez and Zerah. And our Savior was born out of that family. Jesus didn't descend from someone who played a prostitute. He also descended from a prostitute. Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho, who, um, with great faith, helped shield the spies of Israel. And in the end, she was rescued. Uh, She ended up marrying Solomon, who gave birth to a remarkable man, Boaz. You can read about it in the the book of Ruth. Um, She was a foreigner, uh, Ruth fathered Jesse, who fathered David the king. Then there's Bathsheba, the Hittite. Once again, a non-Jew makes it into Jesus' family line. You know the story. David should have been out fighting the battles, but he was at home in Jerusalem. He saw Bathsheba, took her, slept with her, committed adultery with her. She became pregnant in order to cover up his sins. She sends for Uriah, the Hittite, her husband, to bring him back from the battle. David was thinking, oh, well, he comes back from the war. He's going to go lay and sleep with his wife and he's going to cover up my sin. But Uriah the Hittite was a man of valor. While his troops were fighting, he would not go and sleep in his own home. He slept outside. David's plans crumbled. And so he sent Uriah back to the battle and he purposely had him murdered in battle. A lot of skeletons in this closet. But this woman, Bathsheba, ended up marrying David and giving birth to Solomon, the king. Those are the skeletons, just a few of them, in the line of Jesus in his, in his family line. And what are we to make of this? First, very practical. Uh, a lot of people today think the Bible is just a bunch of made-up myths and stories. These New Testament authors had, a, had an agenda. They're trying to get you to believe something that really didn't happen. And so they create these stories so that people would, um, you know, Uh, become Christians. Well, this genealogy proves all of that wrong. How so? Well, who in their right mind would put these details in a story they made up in order to promote this great and glorious Savior? 
Now, what they would have done is they would have left off the Gentiles. There would be no mention of incest. They would delete the prostitutes from their history. They would have kept Uriah the Hittite off the pages of Scripture. They would do all of that unless, of course, the stories are true about Jesus. But this scandalous list tells us more than that this Bible is simply to be believed. This scandalous list does something. It prepares us for a more scandalous event that happens later. In the very next passage right after our text, we're presented with a teenage girl who's betrothed to be married, who becomes pregnant. Sorry, that's a deal breaker. It's not going to work. This can't happen to the Messiah. But it did. Now the Holy Spirit reveals that it's Mary. He's the one, uh, God reveals the Holy Spirit is the one that causes Mary to be with child. It's really not a scandal, right? But it appears to be one. She's a no-account teenager living in a no-account village. She's pregnant with the Son of God. Talk about a story to be believed. But when you see this lineage of Jesus, and when you see the, the failures and the scandals that were in his past, and how God has worked through that to provide the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, you're more, uh, you're more prepared to believe what comes next. A virgin born, uh, giving birth to the Son of God. And T. Wright makes this point. If God can work through these bizarre ways, he seems to be saying something. Watch what he's going to do now. Now when you read that list, you're, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. I understand why it's here. So it prepares us for the virgin birth. But it also prepares us, ourselves here today, for Christmas. I'm going to conclude with our last point. We've looked at who Jesus is and where he's come from, but now let's look at who he came for. You see, this list of broken and messed up people tells us that Jesus came for us too. Hopefully that's a comfort to you this morning. Though untainted by sin himself, Jesus is able to identify with sinners like you and me. Jesus came from a family with skeletons in his closet to rescue us from our skeletons in our closet so that we can become children of God. For honest, we all have skeletons in our closet, don't we? We're all in need of what only Christ can give, forgiveness of sin and peace with God. You know, people in Jesus' day rejected Jesus for what they would say a whole host of different Reasons, But ultimately, uh, essentially, they did not think they needed him. There wasn't the need. Hence, throw away the resume. So too people today. Most people don't think they need a savior. Most people think their own resumes are good enough, just as they are. But think about this. What if, what if you were to write down in your resume everything you've ever done in your life? I know there'd be one long resume. It'd probably be rejected by most places. But you follow me here. You were to write down everything you've ever done. Now, I'm certain you can find some really good things that you would want to put in bold and, and highlight and, and change the font and everything, right? So that people could see it. I'm sure you could, maybe perhaps you, a, a charity, a fundraiser you organized, or, or perhaps a, a good attitude, 
most of the time. You know, uh, perhaps you could highlight success of an, at an Ivy League school. Perhaps you can say, I'm still married to my college sweetheart. Maybe, you, and no doubt you're going to find good things on, to put down on your resume. The problem isn't that we can find good things. The problem is that we have bad things we need to hide. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis said that a man's problem isn't that we don't know right and wrong. Man's problem is that though we know right, we choose to do wrong. But to those who are honest enough to admit that their life's resumes are full of unwanted thoughts and actions, the genealogy of Jesus tells us that he was born to save them. Remember, a resume is meant to match a person with a need. We all need a savior, and that's what Christ was born to be. But check this out. Trusting and believing in Jesus Christ doesn't just um, clean up your moral record. Faith in Christ brings you into a new family tree. That's what John the Apostle tells at the beginning of his gospel. John doesn't begin his gospel with a long list of names. He just talks about this word, this, this pre-existent being, which is God himself, who comes to earth. He writes, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And check this out. And the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. What is John saying? He's saying, yes, many people didn't receive Jesus, but to those who did, those who trusted in him, they were placed in a new family tree. Not that the old one didn't exist, but they're, now they're brought into the family tree of God himself. He gave them the right to become children of God. Not by natural descent, right? Did you see that? Not by, but, but, but being reborn into God's family. My friends, that's what the message of Christmas is, that God sent his son from heaven to be born on earth, to live and to die and to rise again. On the cross, Jesus took all of our uh, horrible resume details. He took them upon us himself so that he can take them away from us if we trust in him. So no matter how checkered your family past is, no matter what you have done in the past, Christ through the cross welcomes you into God's family. A family full of people with checkered paths. Full of people, though, who are saved by grace and given a spotless future. So this Christmas, may we rejoice. May we turn to the one who is called Son of David and the Son of Abraham. Jesus the Christ, born of Mary. Born to die that we might live. Born to establish a new family tree. He's born for you and he's born for me. Let's pray. Who would have thought a genealogy could be so insightful? We thank you, Father in heaven, that though you know our deepest and darkest secrets and sins, you have chosen to send one to redeem us and restore us. It's all a free gift. We don't earn it. It's given to you freely, by your mercy. 
Uh, We thank you that this gift is opened not by our hard efforts, but by faith. We thank you that you've given us one whose resume matches perfect with our need of forgiveness of sin and new life. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.